Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. to season two, episode four of the Writer's Room Podcast. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor, and I'm also a writer, and I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Leslie Watts. I'm a StoryGrid certified editor too, and I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. So for this whole season, we are doing a deep dive into Gillian Flynn's 2012 novel, Gone Girl. And today we are going to look at Middle Build 2. All right, let me give you a summary of the entire Middle Build again, and then I'll take you through the five commandments of Middle Build 2. So here's the summary. The police and Nick investigate Amy's disappearance separately and are operating under different assumptions. The police believe Nick is involved or possibly responsible while Nick believes that Amy is framing him. When the police charge Nick with Amy's murder, he must decide whether he'll focus on his defense strategy or keep trying to lure Amy out of hiding to prove that she is the mastermind behind this crime. He decides to keep trying to lure her out of hiding and eventually she returns home. Now, Sean talks about Middle Bill 1 and Middle Bill 2 in Action Story, The Primal Genre, and I, in season seven of the Roundtable podcast, I went through this new four-act structure. It's not really four acts, it's still three acts. It's still a beginning, a middle, and an end. We're just breaking that middle down into two parts. So in season seven of the Roundtable podcast, I went through this new structure in all of the episodes there just to kind of get a feel for how it works. So if you want more information on um, this middle build one, middle build two thing, you can look at Action Story, The Primal Genre, or any of the episodes in Season 7 of the Roundtable podcast. So last week I said that Middle Build 1 was essentially when the protagonist is a fish out of water. They've crossed into the extraordinary world, but they don't know how it works. So they're using the knowledge and skills that they brought with them from their ordinary world to try and navigate it. It's the calm before the storm. They might enter the ordinary world in not a bad place, but then a little bit at a time, things get out of hand, the stakes escalate, the progressions get more and more complicated until you hit this midpoint climax or midpoint shift. And that is when you slide into chaos and middle build two is chaos. So if middle build one is the calm before the storm, middle build two is the storm. And when the protagonist slides into chaos, everyone and everything else in the story goes into chaos too. And listen, Gone Girl is an example 
a really brilliant example of this chaos phase as well. It was a great example of uh, the Heroes Code 1.0 in Middle Build 1, and now it's a great example for Middle Build 2. So here are the five commandments of storytelling for Middle Build 2, as I see them. Uh, the inciting incident, I think, kind of comes in two parts. It's a one-two punch. The first part is the revelation that Amy is the antagonist. She has planned this escape and made it look like Nick has murdered her. And if that wasn't enough, then we have Nick discovering the puppets and realizing that Amy is framing him for murder. Super powerful. The turning point progressive complication for Middle Build 2 is that the police reveal that they have Judy's handle and it's covered in blood. The crisis. Does Nick, now that he knows he is the prime suspect, and maybe the only suspect, does he focus on his defense strategy as Go and his lawyer and other people want him to? Or does he continue to try and lure Amy out of hiding? So which one is he going to focus on? The climax, which actually isn't on the page, is Nick continues to lure Amy out of hiding. Uh, and the resolution, which I think is also the inciting incident of the ending payoff, is that Amy returns. So I think Middle Bill 2 officially ends on a cliffhanger. Now, anyone who has been following StoryGrid knows, like, I rant and rave about cliffhangers. <laughs> and the reason that they're sort of a, a, a point of irritation for me is because they are so often misused. However, when I studied The Invisible Man, uh, the, the recent film version with Elizabeth Moss, there's a great cliffhanger there. And it made me stop and realize that the problem isn't the cliffhanger. All of the stories, uh, the principles of storytelling, they're all great. They all have strengths and they all have weaknesses. The onus is on us to know what those strengths and weaknesses are so that we can use them to best effect. And the challenge I think that we have as, as novelists and as storytellers is to learn what all the storytelling principles are so that the, the cliffhanger doesn't become a crutch for us and, and doesn't get overused. Because if it's overused, it, it kind of makes you feel like you're watching the old Batman TV show uh, where every commercial break ends on a cliffhanger and you, it gets a bit much after a while. However, when cliffhangers are done well, holy moly, they really work well. And, you know, Gillian Flynn has, in my opinion, ended Middle Bill 2 on this cliffhanger, which is the crisis question of what's Nick going to do? Is he going to focus on his defense strategy or is he going to try and keep getting Amy to come out of hiding? I am interpreting the climactic action based on the first chapter in the third part of the novel because there's clearly three parts. Gillian Flynn has divided it into three parts. Um, Leslie, what do you think of that? Well, I think that, yeah, this is a, this, the middle build two is a really good example of what we need the middle build to, to do, right? Okay. So take, if we take a step back again, in the beginning hook, the protagonist is deciding whether to engage with the problem. They think they understand the nature of it, 
Um, but they can't solve it because they can't really understand it because they can't really see it. And I'm going to say more about that in a moment. So their worldview 1.0 won't allow them to see it. And then in middle build one, that old worldview is being broken down, right? And it's that process that I talked about that, that's called solve a right? So we're just breaking it down. And by the end, they make a sense of the inciting incident for the first time. Okay. So what does that mean? In the global inciting incident, Amy is gone. And the assumption is that she's been taken, not that she's left of her own volition, right? And this is based on what Nick thinks he knows about Amy. So then at the end of Middle Build One, which is the inciting incident for Middle Build Two, Nick learns Amy wasn't taken, she's left, and she's set him up for murder. Okay, so Middle Build Two is the heat to Middle Build One's solve. We're really jacking up the pressure and the heat. And you can see, uh, I'm going to talk in a, in a minute about some of the ways that, that Gillian Flynn accomplishes this. But the protagonist has in, well, let's just say in Middle Build 2, the protagonist learns what the inciting incident means. Now, how's that different from making sense of it? To make sense of it is to be able to see and understand which the protagonist can't do from the beginning or in the beginning. But to know what it means is to come to recognize the dilemma. So from that, they recognize what they must do. And it's a pretty, even in a, a story where you don't have life and death, literal life and death stakes, you still have this sense of, it's still an existential crisis that we're creating in Middle Build 2. What does my life mean if I choose the, you know, door number one or door number two, right? Okay, so let's talk about this specifically in terms of Gone Girl, right? Nick's old tactic is to suck up and seek approval, do what he's told, right? Just let himself be led along. His new tactic is to do whatever is the opposite of what Amy thinks he'll do. And that means he has to engage in second order thinking, not just about what, he doesn't have to just think about what he's thinking, he has to think about what Amy's thinking. He has to get to know Amy. And this moment, it's funny, when he, when he hits his all is lost moment, it reminds me of the moment in the tale of Peter Rabbit when the birds are urging Peter to exert himself. So Nick has been operating under the belief that since he's not guilty, he can't be found guilty. He can just coast. That's his pat passive strategy. It's worked with him. It's worked for him so far, right? 
but now he knows differently. He can and he will be found guilty and be executed unless he exerts himself. So what's interesting to me about this is that, you know, when a character is jaded, when life seems to have no real meaning, they're basically sleeping through life. It requires a cattle prod, right, to get them to wake up and engage. And there's some great quotes. I won't read them here because I know we have we we have so much to talk about. Um, but I'll leave them in the show notes that really demonstrates the way Gillian Flynn is showing him, is showing Nick waking up to the reality of their relationship and what they've done to each other, which harkens back to those first lines when we start the the story. He is really coming to understand what it means, the way that he's lived his life. So that's what I think about that, Valerie. (laughs) It's a lot. You know, when I picked this novel, I mean, I picked it because it's a psychological thriller. It's a contemporary masterwork. There's, I knew there was lots of great stuff in it. But now that we're studying it in detail, this novel is just has layers and layers and layers to it. I mean, there's the superficial story, but you know, then as we start to, to once we get past that, we start to peel away all the layers of you know who Nick really is and what's going on with him, who Amy really is and what's going on with her and and what's happening in the society and there's it's a it's a hefty book 170,000 words but there's nothing extra in it everything that's in this book needs to be in this book it serves a purpose and that's that in and of itself is a lesson for for writers cut the fat cut the fat cut the fat all right so because I'm writing a psychological thriller, I picked this one, and I'm looking at three areas in particular, the story structure, the psychological psychological elements, and the narrative drive. So last week, I focused really a lot on the, the uh, structure and the narrative drive. It's really hard to pull these three apart, uh, but I'm going to try. The psychological elements is what I'm going to look at today. Now, in season five of the Roundtable podcast, I really did Uh, a lot of study on psychological stories, not just thrillers, but any story with a psychological element to find out if there were conventions. How do you make a story, a psychological story? And you can go back to and listen to that season to find out, you know, what I came up with. But the bottom line is that in a psychological story, everything is turned up to 11. Everything is just amped way up. People's uh, reactions and actions are over the top. Uh, it's, it's wonderfully done. And everyone's nerves are frayed. I think about Whiplash, for example, you've got, um, ooh, I think his name was Andrew, the student. He's a good kid at the beginning. He's a, you know, he's a typical kid. He wants to be a, a famous musician and he, He's an okay musician. Clearly, he got into the school. He has talent, but within the very talented students of the school, he's just kind of okay. He's a first year. He's holding his own as a first year, but he really wants to be a star. 
and we see Fletcher pushing him to his breaking point. And that's the key, I think, with a story that where the psychology of a character is in play. It's pushing that character to a breaking point. We saw that in Black Swan. We saw it in The Girl on the Train. Uh, it's obviously here in Gone Girl. Now, the difference in Gone Girl is that when the story opens, Amy is already at her breaking point because of everything that has happened in her life, the way her parents have made her into amazing Amy, have mined her childhood for their profit. Um, she, you know, she's been messed up for a while. <laughs> Whereas with Whiplash, we see the evolution or, or devolution, I guess, of Andrew's psyche. Amy is who she is at the beginning of the book. I don't think she changes at all. We just don't know who she really is because we have her diary that totally misguides us. Um, so I think she ends the book pretty much as she was at the beginning. No huge changes in her. Nick is a totally different person and he's our protagonist, right? And Amy is the antagonist. Okay. I haven't even gotten into what I was going to speak to today. I've already been talking a lot. What I wanted to do is focus on the opening of Middle Build 2 and the closing of Middle Build 2. Now, if you look at uh, the, the first part, the first chapter, it's uh, Amy Elliott Dunn, The Day Of. So we're expecting, because we've been reading her diary all along and it has started seven years ago and it's progressing chronologically in time. So the title isn't throwing us off. The title is a setup. It is what we expect to see. Amy Elliott done the day of. So just by looking at that, we're thinking, okay, this is, we're going to get to see now their anniversary from her point of view that opening scene where she's cooking the crepes and we we know Nick had to psych himself up to go into the room. We're expecting to see that now from her point of view. And we're hoping that it's going to carry on and give us some clues as to what happened to her. Did she, was she abducted? Who abducted her? Who did she talk to? All of the questions that we have had about Amy's day from the time she had breakfast with Nick to her disappearance like all that that's been a big question mark for us and wowzers wowzers is it ever answered for us it starts i mean this whole middle bill too is just it takes off like a rocket and you, you just are trying to hold on uh to to the end of the book it's so well done because this is the point when writers can really when when our stories can really sag so if you want to really re-engage your reader, which is what you want to do here, huh, Gone Girl will show you how to do it. So narrative drive, it kicks in with the very first sentence, right? Which is, uh, I'm so much happier now that I'm dead. Right away you're thinking, what? I don't understand. I'm so confused. So we're expecting answers and we get another question. So the, the key to narrative drive is having your reader ask themselves a bunch of questions because they'll keep reading to find the answers. Then right in the first paragraph, you've got what I'm calling an, an OMG moment 
where you're like, oh my God, oh my God, this can't be, this can't be. You keep reading a couple of lines later, Amy says it, the diary, yes, we'll get to my brilliant diary. Okay, now, now that's a, a full on holy shit moment. You have, or not you, but Gillian Flynn has very effectively rehooked her reader. Because everything we thought we knew is not true. By the end of, or not even the end, but partway through the third paragraph, we're thinking, who the heck is this person? So there's more and more and more questions coming up. Structurally, this section of the book mirrors the opening uh, chapter, uh, which was Nick Dunn, The Day Of. Structurally, it's, it's exactly the same. It's so well done. I keep saying that. I wonder how many times I've said it now. I'll say it a lot more. Um, what do we know about Amy from this little bit? Because Gillian Flynn has to now catch us up pretty quickly as to who we're dealing with here, because she is introducing the antagonist because we didn't know who it was before. Now we know. And in, it's one page in my book, here's what we find out about Amy very quickly. She is self-aware. She knows exactly who she is. She is socially aware. She knows how society works and how, and how to play people. She is a survivor. She is vengeful. She is manipulative. And she was able to manipulate Nick right out of the gate. And she's really smart. Like, smart and clever to me are two different things, and Amy is both. Now, as we saw in Whiplash, well, we see it on a lot of stories, but Whiplash is a really clear example of the antagonist having a really good point. Because if your antagonist doesn't have a good point, they're not as much of a threat. They don't form as much of an opposition. They're easier to sort of pass off. When your antagonist has a really good point and has a belief that, or, or a point of view or, or a worldview that the reader can listen to and think, oh, you know what? The villain has a point. It, the story gets really chilling. Because we don't want to admit in Whiplash that Fletcher has a point. Because we don't condone his treatment of Andrew. But by God, he does have a point. Here, Amy has a really good point. We don't like her behavior. We're not condoning her behavior. Her treatment of Nick is horrible. Her treatment of all the people in her life is horrible. But when she gives the cool girl speech, Every woman reading this book says, oh, yeah, yeah, well, I wish that wasn't true, but it's true. And here's what she says. Um, she, she's talking about wanting to, she, she becomes the cool girl in order to get the guy. And that's what she did with Nick. And she wants to let that cool girl persona go and be who she really is. So, and women all around the world do this. That's what she says, or all, all across the nation. So the United States, but it's, it's broader than that. So here's what uh, Gillian Flynn has written and what um, Amy is saying. Women across the nation colluded in our degradation, 
Pretty soon, cool girl became the standard girl. Men believed she existed. She wasn't just a dream girl, one in a million. Every girl was supposed to be this girl. And if you weren't, then there was something wrong with you. That speaks to our culture today where girls and women are getting such bizarre messaging, you're, you, how you're supposed to look, how you're supposed to think, uh, what you're supposed to do, who you're supposed to associate with. Not No matter what women do, it's not right. You're too tall, you're not tall enough. You're too smart, you're not smart enough. Your hair is too dark, it's not dark enough. Whatever the thing is, right? That is, because the definition of the cool girl is constantly changing. So you can never ever be the cool girl. You can never actually hit it. You, you might move through it very briefly. <laughs> but Amy has a point and it, it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Because we, we understand where the villain is coming from. Amy is a shadow figure and she speaks to our shadow figure. And we don't like to admit that we have a shadow. Now, taken in isolation, this particular chapter in and of itself doesn't point to Amy as a crazy person or as having any psycho, you know, really the depth of her psychological um, ill health. However, when you take it in the context, of the story, it's chilling because we we can say that yeah, she's right about the cool girl. Yes, Nick is a jerk. He has had an affair. He is clueless. Yes, her parents really did treat her poorly and use her as a almost like a a, a test animal, <laughs> you know, because they're psychologists as well. She's right about all that. So the problem isn't her frustration or her hurt. The problem is how she handles it. And the way she handles it, going back to what I said earlier, is way over the top, which is what you need in a psychological story. Her reaction to Nick's infidelity is off the charts. It's not a healthy reaction. She, um, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, right? I mean, that's Amy. She is going to teach him a lesson. She's going to make him pay. So all bets are off now by the end of this opening chapter, which is just a couple of pages long in my book. And we've got a ton of new questions in our mind. We don't really have any answers. We know what happened to Amy, right? She's, she's left um, uh, voluntarily. In fact, she's planned this whole thing out. We know that, but having that answer gives rise to a zillion more questions, which is awesome. Um, Leslie, did you have anything to add? on that much before I go to the closing of MB2. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the progressive complications because, you know, that, that happen in the middle, right? How are we, how is Gillian Flynn turning up the heat on this protagonist and forcing him to change, right? Okay. So, we get the inciting incident. We have the woodshed. This is when Nick discovers the contents of the woodshed, right? And 
keep in mind that his, that Tanner's advice going into this period of time is find an alternative suspect, keep Amy's parents on side and fix your image. Okay. So this is what, this is what he's got in his mind um, as he's trying to deal with all these things. So Andy is out of control. That's not going to be good for his image. And she bites his face, which is something he has to explain over and over again. It's something he has to lie about, right? Every lie creates a problem. It's something you have to maintain, right? Amy's purse is found in Hannibal, and there's evidence that he went there too. There are, there's the argument the night before she disappears and the way that it, you know, like we hear it from his perspective, but we know how it looks from the outside, right? They don't know what's at Nick's dad's house. This is, you know, there's so many open loops, things that he can't control, um, but he also gets some helpful stuff, right? Because progressive complications complicate things, but they can be tools. And one tool is what Tommy O'Hara tells Nick. She's like an Old Testament God when she's upset or angry. That is really important information. Nick doesn't understand his wife. Tommy has just given him a very important clue to unpacking what's going on. And then by the same token, Hillary Handy gives him an important piece of information, which is that she hates other people to know she's imperfect. And who knows your imperfections more than your partner, right? I mean, that's right. So Nick has made her unhappy. He knows that she knows about his infidelities. And he knows that, um, that he knows her imperfections. So he knows, I mean, if, if it wasn't clear to him before, the fact that, that he has a target on his back is very, very clear to him. But then further complications, Andy's press conference, which undermines his relationship even more with Amy's parents and doesn't do a lot for his image. So we have all of this, right? Amy is the alternative suspect, but he can't make that argument because he has to reveal his infidelities and all the lies but it's becoming worse and worse and worse. Now we have the diary being found again. That's just, that's not helping him, of course. And then the woodshed is found, which ultimately leads to the handle being found, which is what means that you're, you know, they didn't, they don't have a body, but
but having the handle, which is a weapon with Amy's blood on it, that's a problem. That means they are going to be able to get a conviction. So again, that's this breaking down and helping him make or help him realize what the inciting incident means. The inciting incident means that you are going to be executed unless you figure this out. So it's just, again, the, the way that it's built so painstakingly as, you know, as if it's a legal case which is so fitting with the narrative device and with the, the milieu of the, you know, U.S. and in a society that tends to solve problems in court. It's just, there's so many layers that are working in this story um, that we will, you know, we, you'll hear again <laughs> and again before we're done with this season that, these are the things that make a story amazing, right? These pieces, this attention to detail, and this second order thinking on the part of the writer. So, yes, that's what I would, uh, that's what I really, th I think is so important. And, uh, you know, just do my, you know, my takeaway from today is what you talk about, Valerie, you've mentioned a lot is that the progressive complications, when that turning point progressive complication got a, um, a what do we call that? It got an upgrade. It got a promotion. Promotion. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> when the turning point progressive complication got a promotion that does not mean that we can forget about the progressive complications because all the progressive complications are what make that turning point matter. And it is ignore that at your peril, much like Nick did. And, and everything that you say there is right on the money. The, you talked about all of the progressive complications that are clues in the in the case in the crime that is escalating the stakes and making the story more complicated. The uh, love story subplot with Andy, it's not arbitrary. It's there for a reason. It serves the story. Everything is in service of the story. So if there's something in your your manuscript right now, the one that you're working on that doesn't have anything to do with your main plot, why is it there? Now, if you're writing a series, perhaps it's just a little breadcrumb that'll, that'll pay off in say book two, but it can't interfere with the main plot of book one. Otherwise it's a distraction and it dilutes your plot, it dilutes your book. And Leslie, you and I were talking about this before we recorded, I mean, yeah, we're story nerds and we love literature, the fine literature, and we love the pulp fiction and we, we just love it all. I think that what we need to remember here is that no matter what we're trying to achieve with our story, our first task is to write something that's entertaining. Because if it isn't entertaining, no matter what your genre is, 
or whether it's literary or genre fiction, you know, using those terms, your reader's not going to keep reading the book. They've got to be entertained by the story. They've got to be pulled in by the story. And so if we emulate Gillian Flynn in terms of her putting only what's in the book, what that the things that need to be in the book and that are going to propel the story forward, this is all about narrative drive. It's hooking the reader. It's keeping them engaged. It's getting them emotionally involved. Uh, it does all these things, but it's got to be, it's got to be entertaining. It's got to be interesting to read. I mean, you know, all the other stuff can come. If it's not entertaining to read or interesting to read, why would anyone read it when they can turn on Netflix or something else? Okay. Um, I just want to say a few things about the closing of Middle Bill 2 because Amy gets caught in her own trap and it's beautiful. <laughs> she, she starts to get her comeuppance. However, she is so clever. She is so cold and calculating that she gets out of it. And I mean, Desi, he's even more cracked than Amy, right? You know, like, he is completely obsessed with her and has been for a very long time. Uh, and he's, he's super creepy. Desi is creepy. Um, he, and she, see, this is the beauty of it, right? Like Amy is the antagonist. She doesn't get out of this scot-free. She's also naive. Like we, we talked about this in one of the earlier episodes. She might be devious and calculating, but she doesn't have street smarts. And that's why she loses all her money and ends up having to call Desi for help. So Desi imprisons her in a, in a no, beautiful lake house that's like a mansion, but he won't let her have any money. He's not, it's not like Silence of the Lambs where they're being kept in a basement. It is a beautiful lake house, but it is nonetheless a prison. She can't leave when she wants. He won't give her any money except a couple of 20s or something like that. Um, he dictates what she wears, how she looks. He makes her change her hair back. Uh, he makes her lose the weight. He hovers over her for everything. Um, he even wants to take her to Greece, which is taking her further away, imprisoning her further. So no one can have Amy but him. Of course, Desi's actions actually support Amy's argument in the opening of this about the cool girl. Because Desi doesn't want the real Amy. He wants Desi's Amy, Desi's version of the cool girl, which is who he thinks Amy really is, because that's who she presented herself as. Right? So Amy's point, he is kind of making Amy's point for her again, like reinforcing it for the reader while at the same time trapping her. And it takes someone like Desi to make Amy realize that Nick actually isn't bad by comparison. Um, she talks about Desi constantly wanting her to thank him. And she says, well, at least that's one thing Nick didn't make me do. I didn't have to constantly thank him for everything. Suddenly, this is uh, Amy Elliott done 11 Days Gone. That's where that comes in. And 
I think it's in that same part where she actually defends Nick. This is the where where Nick and uh, sorry, where um, Amy and Desi are watching Nick's interview with Sharon, and Desi makes a crack about him about Nick being really manicured, and he doesn't look like a, a man whose wife is missing. Amy defends Nick by saying Nick would never get a manicure. This is the man that she has set up for murder. <laughs> I mean, you know, and when this happens in the story, again, this is, this is just a, a beautiful example of narrative drive because as the reader, we're reading this and we're saying, what the heck? What's going to happen now? And you, you can't help but turn the page to find out, is Amy gonna get away from Desi? How is she gonna get away from Desi? And when you start to realize how she's gonna get away from Desi, it's terrifying. <laughs> it, it's terrifying. Is Nick gonna figure this all out? Is he gonna get away with this? And she is, we, we are, well, I was anyway, confident that she was gonna get back to Nick because she's smart enough to do that. But that's when shit really hits the fan. Like, what's going to happen then? And that, of course, is the ending payoff. You, th there's just more questions, more and more questions, and you just, oh, so well done. Okay, so you've done your key takeaway. Let me talk about my key takeaway here to, to end off the episode. Um, and it's it's kind of a, an aha moment for me. And it's a, it's, we talked about it in season one. Uh, Leslie, you and I have talked about it a lot, but the, the more I study story, the more I am becoming convinced that really what these stories are about is power. Where is the point of power here? Who has it? Who wants it? Who ends up with it? For example, what does Amy want? You know, at, at, at its most base level, she wants power. She wants control over Nick. This whole thing is to teach Nick a lesson because he had an affair. It wasn't even the dragging her off to Missouri where she didn't really want to be. It was the, he had an affair and she will not stand for that. And she's going to teach him a lesson. That, that desire to teach someone a lesson is to overpower them is to lord power over them to make them submit to you and show them that you are dominant this is going along fine until desi comes along until she ends up in the lake house and then desi is the one with the power amy doesn't have it anymore and she's starting to realize oh actually it was better with nick because i could dominate him I can be the boss of him, right? He, he does, like I, I can manipulate him and make him do what I want. It's not arbitrary that Gillian Flynn chose puppets, uh, Punch and Judy, I mean, come on. But it, had she chosen any puppets, uh, it, it would have worked. But Gillian Flynn is, is uh, such a craftsperson that she amped it up even further rather than choosing just any two puppets she chose punch and judy which 
just makes the plot and the story that much more delicious, right? Um, and and if you don't know the Punch and Judy story, it doesn't matter because the fact that they're puppets speaks volumes. If you don't know, Google it. <laughs> and then, you know, message me and let me know. Message me on Twitter and let me know if the hair on the back of your neck stands up or not. Um, at StoryGridArty. <laughs> I have to give the Twitter handle. I keep forgetting. So, so this is what Gillian Flynn is able to do. You know, we have the Amy as the puppeteer, as the puppet master, as the one who wants the power and control. She wants to go back to Nick because that is her power position. And she does have power. He does submit to her. Right? Like Gillian Flynn, you are awesome. And that wraps it up for this week. Remember, if you want to become a better writer, you've got to write and you've got to read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work? To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash Inner Circle or Writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit StoryGrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>